0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can follow me on Instagram where I'm archiving and discussing my collection of Beatles books with the account at BooksBeatles. I'm joined today by writer and author Peter Ames Carlin to discuss his 2009 book, Paul McCartney, A Life. Peter's book examines McCartney's entire life and provides much-needed analysis of the tumultuous and yet thrilling wings and solo years. We also discuss his new book about Warner Brothers Records, Sonic Boom, in which he captures the amazing story of the most successful record label in rock and roll history. Peter Ames-Carling, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm fine, Joe. Thanks for
1: having me here. It's great to talk to you.
0: No worries at all. So we're going to delve back into the past initially, and we're going to talk about a book which is 12 years old this year, which is your your book about Paul McCartney, um, just just subtitled A Life. Does it feel like 12 years ago since you you wrote this? You know, in some ways,
1: yeah. In other ways, it all feels very vivid to me. I mean, I I still remember this weird sort of otherworldly feeling I got when I stepped off the train at at Lime Street in, in Liverpool, And walked into Liverpool for the first time because I had been a, uh, you know, a Beatle fan for, you know, since I, you know, my whole life, essentially, since I was three years old in in the mid 60s. And I first heard Rubber Soul and Revolver. Um, Mm. uh, And so they'd been, it had been such a huge part of my imagination. I kind of felt like I was walking off, I felt like I was walking into a fairy tale a little bit. You know and 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 that was just such a you know it was I almost felt like I was gonna hyperventilate you know I mean there was something just so strange about it but then you know but then once I settled in and began to uh to get to know the town a little bit and get to know some of the people that you know obviously it's just another part of the world but uh Mm -hmm. but that part of it is still very very vivid it was very strange to to spend that much time walking in Paul's footsteps and Kind of coming more, you know, a little more face to face with his humanity, you know, just as an actual human being, you know, who ties his shoes in the morning, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing.
0: What was the initial kind of inspiration for the book? Were you always a Paul fan when you started to listen to the Beatles?
1: Oh, yeah, really, from the time I was a kid. I mean, I mentioned that I first listened to them when I was three. I was born in 1963, and my parents were, I guess, in their late 20s or early 30s in the mid 60s. And so they were, you know, a little bit of the previous generation, but they were sort of hip enough that they had a few rock records and and two of them were Revolver and, and Rubber Soul. And I just remember lying on the floor of the living room in our, you know, the first house we owned in Seattle when I was a little boy and listening to these records and just being so swept up in it. And Paul, you know, I think Paul was always the easiest for a kid to, to get their arms around at first because, you know, he had that really cute sort of baby face sort of boyish look about him and his songs, you know, were always that much more upbeat and melodic and everything. I mean, I think little kids tend to be Paul people at first and, yeah. and I certainly was. And then I, I stayed with it. You know, I've always really at heart been, I mean, I, I love the other guys, of course, and there are things about John and George and, and their work that that appealed to me more as I, you know, as I've gotten older, but Paul is still really <laughs> kind of my my foundational beetle, I suppose.
0: Me too, for what it's worth. Me too. That inspiration, that that fandom for Paul. How did that lead into you to start writing the book?
1: Well, I had um, my first book that had come out in two thousand and six was a, a book about Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, and Brian is is kind of the next person, I, artist that I fixated on. You know, as I was growing up, which was like in the mid 70s, when there was the whole Brian is back business, mm. and he was coming back to the Beach Boys after, a, you know, a years long absence. And there was a lot of publicity about him and his work and his genius and his troubles and, and all that. And So I fell into Brian and, and, and I got this opportunity to meet him and write a story about him when I was working at, at People magazine in New York, Back in the late '90s and, and I just really, really wanted to do his book and and I ended up getting that opportunity and, and wrote this book with him and When that came out and ended up being fairly well received, um, I got a shot to do another book and you know like with the, you know all the subsequent books i 've written there 's kind of a calculus that I do when i 'm considering you know what who I might want to write about next, which is essentially is there room in the market? for another book? Like, is there part of a story that feels like it still needs to be told? Is this an artist that I admire uh, enough that I, you know, and has an interesting enough story that I, you know, that I can imagine spending two or three years inside that person's head, listening to their music backwards and forwards, and, you Mm -hmm. know, and really, really trying to dig into it. And of course, with Paul, Yeah, I, you know, I would happily spend two years doing nothing but listening to Paul McCartney music for no reason whatsoever. And in fact, I'd done that for years and years and years. And so that was not going to be a problem. And it felt to me, you know, I mean, one of the ultimate questions that I ask myself when I start a book is, or when I'm thinking about starting a book is, is there the book that I want to read about this person? Like, does this book exist? Um And in this case, the answer was, you know, no, you know, it's like, there, I felt like there was a story to be told about Paul McCartney, uh, you know, that I hadn't read yet, and that I wanted to read. And, you know, what, the, what the hell, I, I, you know, I might as well give it a shot and, and try to do it myself. Mm. And, uh, you know, I managed to, you know, to convince my publisher, to, you know, to give me a contract to do this one. And, uh, and then boom, we were in business and off I went.
0: So after this book, you, you wrote, other other books on similar cultural icons namely uh, paul simon and, and bruce springsteen was this a harder book for you to kind of bring together
1: the hard thing about it there were a couple of hard things about it um one is that you know trying to connect with paul mccartney or get access to paul mccartney is like trying to get access to the queen you know it's <laughs> everybody wants to and and it's super duper hard and the walls around them are Are really high and really thick and really well protected you know it probably would have been a lot easier if I had had like you know if I was working for a magazine or something and doing a story about a record or you know some piece of work that Paul was just putting out and looking for publicity for you know I think Hmm. you know writers who have gotten access to him sort of start out that way because that's how I started with Brian Wilson I mean He had a new record coming out in 1998, and I was working for, you know, one of the biggest magazines in the U.S., and so when I asked to get access to him, they were like, you know, hell yes, you can have access to Brian, you know, and it wasn't because it's me, it's because it's because I was the face for 40 million readers of People Magazine, Mm. you know, all potentially record buyers, and so of course they wanted to talk to me, but when I, you know, come to Paul, like I'm, I'm a writer in, in, in the U S and I'm, and I've written this one book and now I'm going to write a book about you. And I would like to have access His people were like, yeah, well, you know, (laughs) you know, like we don't really think so. There was no pressing reason for it. And they didn't know me and he didn't know me. And so I thought, well, you know, I've heard that before and I would hear it again. And oftentimes I start projects and, you know, with a hard no from the subject, but after spending, you know, a few months or a year or two working on their book, you know, they just eventually, they hear enough about what I'm doing or, you know, uh, and get comfortable with the idea or that they eventually change their minds, which is what would happen with Bruce Springsteen, the next book. I mean, Hmm. Bruce is really, really hard to get to, but for whatever reason, you know, uh, you know, I worked without his cooperation for a year and a half and then one day the phone rang and it was his manager saying, well, you know, I think we're ready to talk about cooperating and, and they, you know, and then that really fell together in a really nice way. So obviously my hope for McCartney when I started that book was that something like that was going to happen, that partway through they were going to figure out like, oh, well, he seems to be asking the right questions and he seems like a legitimate guy and, mm. you know, we really like his Brian Wilson book or something and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, so, okay, what the heck. So I kept in touch, you know, I was calling his office fairly regularly speaking to his, uh, his assistant trying to, you know, see, well, do you think I might, you know, blah, 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 like some (laughs) level of, and they were, you know, there was one, especially there were two assistants when I was working on the book and, and the one Uh, who left partway through was, I think she'd seen enough of people like me. Mm. She got a little cranky because I was, you know, you have to, as a biographer and you're trying to get access, you walk that line between being persistent and being annoying, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and you try to stay on the right side. But it's, but the thing is, it's like, it's part of the gig. It's like, you have to keep at people because otherwise it's very easy for them to say no. And then once they say no, you know, I mean, the idea is, do you accept the no or do you just, you know, I sort of developed this line where I say to people like, well, you may not be enthusiastic about it, but I've got enough enthusiasm for both of us. So I'm <laughs> going to keep going. You know, I mean, that's kind of my stock line. Very so. good. But then the second the second uh, the PA that he had was, uh, she was awesome. I forget her name now, but she had this way of saying no, giving me exactly the same answer as the first one, but doing it in a way that made me feel so good about myself and so <laughs> good about Paul. That I don't know how she did it. It was like magic. But anyway... So I never did quite get access. It's a very, very difficult world to crack. And that was, and obviously there had been so much written about the Beatles that was hard too, uh, to figure out like, well, what little nuggets can I do? But there was much more clear terrain. I mean, part of what I really wanted to do with the book was to write a sort of unify Paul McCartney of the Beatles with Paul McCartney of Wings and Solo Years, you know, like those aren't two different stories. No, and no. the point of my book or what I set out to do was to write about the entirety of his life and not have it end with, you know, the breakup of the Beatles and then 20 pages of everything else. You know, I wanted, you know, at least half the book to be about his career after the Beatles.
0: Yeah. Which, which is equally as interesting, um, if not more so in, in some ways. Um, So, uh, I mean, I, for me, one of the highlights of, of your book was your work on uh, Paul's childhood, which, it is, obviously it has its own slices of tragedy, much like John's, but in, in a kind of a, a, mm-hmm. a, a different way. Was this a difficult period of Paul's life to, to research? How did you approach looking and trying to find that new stuff about his kind of pre-fame years?
1: Well, a lot of what I try to do when I'm researching these books is, is, to, is to get beyond what's already appeared in the mainstream media you know, because these narratives kind of develop, you know, when you're writing about certain famous people, you know, people who get written about a lot, what will happen is that there'll be some early account or somebody will write something early on. And that sort of becomes the accepted truth. Um, and I've seen this happen again and again and again. And the trick is, it is to f- pretend that that doesn't exist and try to go back to primary sources and redo the you know, the research. You know, what I try to do is go to like local newspapers and local publications that would have reported stuff as it was happening and go back to hopefully original sources. You know, it was difficult to get to, you know, obviously it was, you know, I remember I I rang up Michael McCartney, his brother, Mm. who was enormously, you know, I mean, who was not rude, but was very sort of like clear that, You know that I wasn't the first person who had bothered him on this particular line of (laughs) questioning, and that you know, so so that was difficult. You know, there was quite a bit of previously published stuff about Paul. So then, for that, I think a lot of it was I spoke to some of his friends, I spoke to some people that had been around him when he was a child. The difficulty with doing a book about the Beatles is that people who get spoken to a lot sort of develop a shtick. You know, they have their you know they they write about you know they just they describe the person's life sort of in the context of their own existence and and to some you know some people may be enhancing their roles in it or their perception of it so really it just comes down to trying to talk to as many people who saw things as possible and there were early quarrymen and people that I spoke to and I think one or two people who had gone to school with with Paul uh, when he, you know, in primary school. So hmm. so there were people, and it was just a question of trying to kind of weave together the previous accounts and, and square them with the things that these other people who had been there at the time had, you know, what they had to say. Hmm. Um, but Paul's life, to be honest, I mean, it was a real challenge, that, that, that early, early stuff, just because so, you know, these were fields that had been plowed so many times with people <laughs> going over you know, trying to figure out something new to say about Paul McCartney and the Beatles, but you know I mean I just sort of did you know i I did what I could and 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 just really tried to ask hard questions about you know things that had seemed to be mythological, you know trying to figure out what was myth and what was real mm. you know because the hard part is that you get somebody like Paul who's really, really good at doing his own pr uh, and telling his story, but, but you'll see his his version of his life evolve as the years go by. So you need to figure out, like, well, when, like, which of these versions is more true, you know? Yeah. <laughs> how, like, which of this, you know, because all of them come from Paul, right? So, but where is Paul being the most honest about what actually happened versus what he wished happened? <laughs> and I think, you know, people see their own lives differently as their lives go by.
0: Especially someone like Paul that's been famous since he was 22. After those pre-fame years come the fame years and he, he, you know, he, he's in this little-known beat combo from Liverpool called the Beatles. And obviously we can't talk about the book and not talk about the Beatles. Paul's always seen as the you know the most enthusiastic member, the, the guy that needed the Beatles the most. He'd make the phone call to get them down to Abbey Road to start another record. Um, from what you found out, from writing the book. Do you think that's a bit of an oversimplification or or do you think Paul really was the the guy that needed the Beatles the most?
1: You know, I think that as years went on, you know, as their career went on, he was the one who was the most enthusiastic about keeping it going and just working, working, working. Mm. You know, um, and I think like in any family, you know, people take on roles, you know, just to sort of create like a stable unit. And the thing about the part of the magic of the Beatles was this chemistry of four different types of people coming together and creating this kind of perfect whole, this sort of creative, you know, unit that they had. You know, John and Paul were very different types of people, you know, and John and George were, you know, they all sort of brought in like different facets into this into this sort of freakishly perfect creative unit. Um, and Paul was the keen one, you know, I mean, he was energetic and organized motivated and very clear about what he wanted them to achieve and i think i think you know there's always that paradoxical thing where the thing that's that makes somebody great is also the thing that that destroys them or wrecks them a little bit and i think that part of paul's enthusiasm and that keenness that kept them going was part of what made the beatles great but on the other hand, when it got a little out of hand toward the later part of the 60s mm. and they began to kind of lose some enthusiasm and he, you know, again, like I said earlier, like about me taking on books, well, I've got enough enthusiasm for both of us. You know, Paul had enough enthusiasm for all of them. Mm. And, um, and I think, you know, so you got to the point where like they finished the White Album in 1968 and that was a difficult project for them. It was a difficult year you know, Brian Epstein had died and they'd gone through the whole business in India, which bonded them to a degree. But then there was tumult in John's life and he was you know, getting divorced and settling mm-hmm. in with Yoko and they were going in separate directions and growing up. But instead of taking a break from each other, which probably would have been the smart thing to do after a difficult project like the White Album, you know, Paul gets them all geared up to go in and start doing the get back sessions in January, which is literally like six weeks after the White Album came out. Mm. And it's like, you know, and they were <laughs> sick to death of each other, you know, it, you know, at least, you know, that's the version of events that we've heard. And now there's the Peter Jackson version yeah. of the movie that's gonna come out, you know, it's gonna tell the whole other story, you know, the part where they're having fun with each other, which I think is just as true, mm. you know, maybe not the whole truth, but just as true. And so, so you sort of see that's the point at which they really, you can see John and George just really beginning to lose their patience with Paul because he's, he's, he, he's taking on a kind of authority over them that they are beginning to clearly resent. And Paul is so driven in his own mind that he can't perceive that to a degree. He's having, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't understand why they're, why they're losing their patience with him. You know, but there's part of them, but you can see them, you know, and, and when even in, in those those get back sessions where they're playing, you know, and, and Ringo and, and Paul have always said this is that no matter how much they were getting on each other's nerves when they had a good song to play, they were they were always having a great time. And yeah. you can see that on their faces, even yeah. on, even in the, uh, the Let It Be movie that already exists you know, through all the rancor and the, and, and the grousing and fussing and arguing, you know, the moment they focus on a tune and somebody counts them in, the looks on their faces are just, you know, it has to be fantastically fun to be part of a group that's that good. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, when you're in the band and you realize, like, this is the best band in the world and I'm in it, <laughs> it's like, and here we are making, I mean, that's just got to be a, an ecstatic feeling.
0: I think the rooftop concert is testament to that. When you look at all of them, even George, you know, who'd walked out what, you know, three weeks earlier, they're just having the, the best time despite, you know, British winter conditions and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're, they're having such a, such a great time. Yeah. I think being in a. I think, I think they all loved being in the Beatles. It's just, I think, I think Paul maybe loved it a bit more than the others, but who can blame him? Who can blame him after the Beatles, comes Wings and uh, let's let's talk a lot about Wings because I I know that you've got particular affection for Wings for as as that's the era that you uh, for properly got into into Paul first of all Paul's the only one of the four of them after the breakup to really to form a band essentially why do you think that was do you think that speaks something to his personality or do you think that was just a practical thing
1: you know, I mean, part of what he had been trying to do with the Beatles in those, you know, in 1969, as he kept saying, was to get them back on the road, you know, and be a good little rock band again and go play shows and, and see see the looks on people's faces when they play music, you know, and get that feeling of that audience, you know, and that that adoration. And, and 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 I think he loved the feeling of being in a band and going from gig to gig in a band. You know, I mean, that's what the Beatles did in their earliest you know, and I guess maybe happiest days to a degree mm. that there's a camaraderie and a you know, and a fellowship and it's just, and then you get to go up on stage and play these songs and everybody goes bananas and you know, it's, <laughs> it's an incredible amount of fun. And so I think that he wanted that back. He wanted like the, be- John and George, you know, didn't want to go on the road and and you know, and be the Beatles going to clubs and you know, and playing little gigs or whatever and they wouldn't do it. And so, you know, a year and a half later, he was like, well, screw it. You know, I'm Mm. gonna put together, you know, the Beatles have broken up, so I'll just put together another combo and we'll go and do it. And, you know, I mean, both he and John had been so accustomed to having a creative element in their closest relationship, you know, with which had been primarily between the two of them, you know, as friends and as creative musical partners in the Beatles. And once they drifted apart and they both got involved, you know, seriously involved, you know, with the women in their lives, you know, John with Yoko and Paul with Linda, it was like, okay, great. Well, my female partner will be my musical partner now, which was more of a stretch, I think, for Linda than it was for Yoko. But Linda still proved like, I think, a really good creative influence on Paul. Um, But I think that, you know, I mean, what did Paul do? The first thing they did after they put their first record together was to, uh, you know, was to hit the road and and go play those college shows, you know, show up unannounced and (laughs) blow the minds of the student body. And I, you know, and, and, you know, originally the idea was it was going to be a a democratic band like the Beatles were. But of course they weren't going to be a democratic (laughs) band like the (laughs) Beatles were, if only because the Beatles were never a democratic band. You know, it was kind of John and Paul's band yeah uh you know and they called the shots and you know and the others were uh you know and in this case it was paul's band and you know i mean he was the lead singer and the lead i mean he was an ex beatle i mean there was nobody more famous and powerful in 1971 than an ex beatle
0: do you think he ever thought seriously about doing the supergroup thing about getting obviously he could have had his pick of he could have had you know elton john and keith richards or, or whatever do you think he ever really th- mm-hmm. thought about going down that road
1: It seems like Paul, you know, alone among the other Beatles, has been leery of working with other artists who you might perceive of as his equal. Um, I think that he always, you know, he sort of, in the Beatles, he even was growing into this, this, this role of being kind of the leader, you know, and for a time that worked fine for John because John was lost and sort of more you know doing more drugs and all that stuff and and had kind of lost his bearings but when he met yoko and then kind of rediscovered his bearings as a as an artist and as a as a leader you know that's when you know things really kind of got sideways with him and paul i you know and i think paul was a little stung by that i mean i think there's part of him obviously he loves playing with 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 really good musicians and you know, and he was always looking for the best players, but, you know, he also loved the idea of, of hiring people, working with people, not because they were fantastic, but because they worked well with him. He was looking to create a certain kind of chemistry Hmm. and not go with like necessarily known super famous players, but to go with people who just felt like good partners for him. And so, you know, and he found great players for wings. I mean, You know, uh, Denny Sywell was a fantastic drummer. Denny Lane, you know, had really proven himself with the Moody Blues and was really, really well thought of at the time as a singer songwriter. Uh, And then Henry McCullough was a fantastic guitar player. And so it was a pretty, you know, and then the one compromise, the creative compromise, was putting Linda on keyboards, Mm. you know, because she was not experienced at it. But you know, but the vibe then was she's important enough as a creative partner for Paul you know and his romantic partner and the person he wanted to be around that he figured he could just teach her how to do it in the same way that the Beatles learned their instruments as they went mm. you know but but the difference and i'm and I'm pretty sure that Linda would would agree uh is that Linda just wasn't you know Linda could play parts and everything and and you know and figure things out enough that she could hold her own up there but she was not an inspired she was not a born musician in the same way Mm. I mean she was clearly a musical person but she what but there's a difference I mean I'm a musical person right but I'm not I've no business being on stage with Paul McCartney (laughs) I can play keyboards and and guitar and I can teach myself stuff and everything I have enough music flowing through my veins that I can do certain things but on the other hand you know, I've played in bands with people and, and even among like the folks in my neighborhood, there are people who are just clearly better musicians <laughs> than I am, you know, and I've played, I've played with people with whom, you know, I've been the weakest link in bands before <laughs> and it's pretty clear. And so it's like, I think that one of the things about Linda, which is enormously creative or, or courageous was just the fact that she, you know, she had the, the, the guts to to, to, to get up there and 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 be on stage with her husband who just happened to be one of the most brilliant singer songwriters musicians of of the last century mm. <laughs> i mean that's a lot that's biting off a lot absolutely um so let's let's talk a bit about
0: some of those people that paul did choose to be in wing so i think it's a fascinating kind of question obviously over the course of the book you you spoke to some of the Wings men that, that joined Paul. Um, first of all what did you kind of find out about what it was like to be in a band with Paul McCartney?
1: Well it was best of times and the worst of times I think for these guys. Like on the one hand you're playing with Paul McCartney and, and, that's, and he's a genius right? So he's, he's, he's coming up with these incredible songs and he's a fantastic musician. He's super duper enthusiastic about it and he loves music. And, you know, these guys loved music and they loved to play music. And, you know, it was a great, great thrill, you know, but on the other hand, he was Paul McCartney in the sense that he was a little on the bossy side and, you know, maybe a lot on the bossy side and he had high expectations and he wasn't always the best communicator. And, you know, the same things that, uh, you know, and, and, and there was this power differential that, you know, they were clearly working for him. And he called the shots. And oftentimes that could, that could become difficult. And it did become difficult for a, lot of, for a lot of those people, you know, for a lot of the, the people who were in Wings. Mm. Um, because eventually, you know, he pushes and pushes. And eventually, you, you, you know, you lose your patience to a degree. And you saw that happen over and over again. I mean, uh, you know, Henry McCulloch and, 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 Danny Sywell left right before band on the run and, you know, Jimmy McCullough left, uh, for whatever reasons. And, and it's just, you know, I mean, Denny Lane stayed with him through the entire time, but, hmm. you know, but part of the problem was that, you know, I mean, they felt like, you know, they, they didn't really have a whole lot of, they were clearly his employees. Let's put it that way. Hmm. And, um, and I think there were times when they felt like, you know, just even, you know, creatively, they were just, he was pretty much just telling them what to do a lot of the times. And I think also the other thing that made it difficult was the fact that they were never really in control or sure of how the money situation was going to work. Right. Because obviously, you know, all virtually all the songs. were were going to be written by Paul, he was going to sing them all, he was the main guy in the band, and, you know, he was going to make all the publishing money, and and he was going to write, you know, they were, like, on salary or getting X amount or whatever. And so on the one hand, I think they came, you know, some of them came away feeling like they had been playing these huge gigs and touring the world and making a decent amount of money, but not superstar money when they were in a kind of superstar act. But on the other hand, you know, the, the reason they were superstar act was because of Paul, you know, I mean, cause it's Paul McCartney's band and everything. But I think that to some degree, I think it was just difficult. I think also there's that thing where Paul is all hip and cool and everything's going to be great and don't worry about it. But then they had ended up having to negotiate with John Eastman, you know, or Lee Eastman, you know, John Paul's in-laws and managers. And those guys could be, I think, pretty hardball about, you know, talking to these guys and making them feel like, you know, you're just another widget and Paul doesn't really need you. And you'll take this small amount because that's what we're going to offer you or you can leave. You know, I think there were elements where, I think they just sort of felt there were, you know, ultimately a lo- enough problematic things happened that it just began to feel to them like this isn't worth it anymore. Mm. You know, Paul is, you know, he's too, like, I'm not getting off creatively anymore and I'm getting, you know, I feel like I'm getting lowballed. I just can't handle this anymore. I mean, it's amazing to think that Henry, you know, that uh, Henry McCullough and uh, Denny Sywell left right on the eve of recording Band on the Run. Yeah. But, you know, they also may have been smart because, you know, I mean, those are fantastic songs and they had worked out arrangements and really come up with, put, you know, really put together what they were going to record. Uh, but I think also the idea of having to go to Africa to do it, you know, which was a sort of, not very well considered idea from Paul because they go down there to Lagos and, uh, and uh, the, you know, the, the Capitol studio there is like barely exists. They actually, you know, I mean, that was one of the funny things I learned. They actually had to, you know, pick up hammers and nails and, and build like the acoustic walls just to get the basic, you know, setup that a modern studio in, you know, in the first world would have. And then you know, there was, you know, Paul got robbed that one time and it felt like it seemed like maybe they were going to think about killing him and there was a lot of sc- scary stuff happening. And then there was conflicts with some of the local musicians who, was wor- who were worried that he was going to come and steal their music or whatever he was doing. I mean, it was a very, very difficult set of sessions down there. So maybe that's what Henry and Denny uh, anticipated when they mm. decided to not go. But they did leave at the last second and kind of leave Paul in the lurch, which he found super aggravating.
0: Yeah. Which of the lineups do you think Paul was the happiest with? Which one and which one do you think was the most kind of successful artistically?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question um, in terms of which he was happiest with. I mean, I feel like, you know, it's interesting to go back and I remember watching that Wingspan documentary, which. And I remember him talking about Henry and Danny leaving in in 1973 and just sort of shrugging and saying, oh, you know, they just didn't really fit, mm. which is what he said about every musician who left. <laughs> oh, you know, ultimately, they just didn't really fit. And it's like, well, Paul, I think it's a little more complicated than that. You mm. know, I mean, I understand why he didn't want to like, you know, I think it's hard for him maybe more at some times than other times to acknowledge that he's made mistakes, you know, that he's, you know, I mean, especially when it comes to dealing with other musicians, because part of being the sort of creator that he is, is, you know, he has to have an extremely strong ego to take the risks, you know, the emotional risks that go into creating the work that he creates. And, and also just, just the amount of, of energy it takes, psychic energy to, to, to do the work that he does. I think for him, it's, 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 kind of hard to go back and and acknowledge that you know he might have made some mistakes or he wished he'd done something different or or maybe he just doesn't think that way I mean I think the 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 sort of the the Mach 2 wings you know the version that had um or Mach 3 or whatever I mean they went through that phase where Jeff Britton was the drummer you know and then that was really only a few months and he didn't really fit in I mean he really didn't fit in (laughs) Um, and then they got Joe English in and uh you know and Jimmy McCulloch. And, and that was the version of the band that made Venus and Mars and Wings at the Speed of Sound and, uh, and took it on the road and you know, did that amazing Wings Over the World tour, 75, mm. 76, um, which is when I first saw him play in 1976. And that was really, I remember at the time, people feeling like this is a way better version of Wings than the other, you know, right. the earlier version, which, which I don't even know if that's true or not. You know I mean, Paul was also getting better at doing the work that, you know, he needed to do in that second part of his career. Jimmy McCulloch was a great guitar player, but so was Henry McCullough, you know. Mm. Uh, whether, you know, and Denny Cywell was a great drummer, and Joe English was good and everything. I mean, it's, it's it just, for whatever reason, you know, I mean, probably a combination of factors. That version from the mid-70s of that band was really tight, and they played, you know, if you listen to that Wings Over America album, the live record from 76, you know, they play really well. I mean, they were a really hot band. Mm. And Jimmy McCulloch was a great, great lead guitar player. And they had a lot of great songs. And, you know, I mean, that was a really, you know, incredibly hot moment for McCartney. I just, you know, if you go and you look at the lineup of the tunes that they played on that Wings Over the World Tour, the mid 70s tour, the astounding thing is he only played like four or five Beatles songs and all of them were in the first half of the show. So when you got to the, the later part of the show, where, you know, they pull out all the the, the huge hits, the war horses that are going to make everybody go berserkers, you know, those were all recent songs. I think the oldest song that they played in the last, you know, 30 minutes of the main set and then throughout the, uh, the encores, I think the oldest song was high, 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 high which was four years old at the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other songs were two years old, one year old, you know, it's, it's, you know, and people were going insane for that stuff. It wasn't like, oh, I wish he was going to play, you know, Hey Jude right now. Nobody was thinking that because the mm. wings, the wings were so hot right then. Mm.
0: I always feel uh, slightly sorry, I think, for the the final in- incarnation of Wings, because I think, I don't know, I, I I think that obviously the drug bust was what ended that, and I think Paul's energy levels for Wings, you know, he said himself, had certainly diminished, particularly after Back to the Egg got quite a lukewarm, critical and commercial response, I think then the age levels definitely dipped. But I think that actually some of those live recordings from the British tour of 79, I think at times they were, mm-hmm. they were really strong. But I, I think maybe the personalities of Steve Holly and Lawrence Stuber weren't quite right. But I would love to have seen them do a, a, an equivalent US tour and compared that to the, to the Wings Over America one. Yeah.
1: You know, I think I mean, first of all, you know, back to the egg. I mean, I don't think that was a lukewarm critical thing. I think that was icy. Um Okay, okay. They, people really really ripped into that album. I mean, at least that's how it was in the US. I don't know. I mean, it could have been different in England. I mean, you know, there are times when, you know, people in the, in the UK and Europe, you know, would you know, Paul's reputation you know it's waxed and waned there and and in the u.s but uh, but, yeah. but anyway in america i can tell you for sure that people leaped all over back to the egg like it was just the worst record record ever <laughs> but then you go back and listen to it now and it's like wait a minute this is a good record like that whole <laughs> first side is really strong yeah and those are really asking hard rock and roll songs i mean it's really punky in its way like spin it on and Old Siam, Sir, you know, these are hard, rocking, great songs. You know, and and then like Lawrence Juber's solo in uh, Golly Is That Spin It On, where it's just like this rollicking, it, it just goes like a merry-go-round that's gone out of control, you know, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. spinning its way into orbit. You know, I don't know the extent to which Lawrence Juber and Steve Hawley were the problem in terms of Paul's losing his enthusiasm for the band as much as it was maybe just being in a band, you know, maybe the impulse that he had had 10 years earlier to start, you know, his own band had just, you know, maybe he had scratched that itch enough and gotten to a point where he realized, you know, he needed to move on to, you know, a different kind of setup, you know, more of a solo career. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's what he did. But, uh, you know, I mean, he does talk about sort of subconsciously having the, uh, you know, that drug bust, you know, being sort of a function of his, have, you know, kind of a self-destructive thing of just not really not wanting to do the, the global tour they had planned out for, yeah. you know, 1980. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and lo and behold, you know, 10 days in prison in Japan and, <laughs> and, uh, and that blew the whole thing up. And, and Wings were no more
0: after that. That was always going to be the the end um so after that we come into the 1980s which I think is a really kind of fascinating decade looking back on it now for Paul Uh, again I think your book's really excellent on on covering it because it isn't really covered in a lot of other books about Paul um and I think it's fascinating to, to as we look back now in 2021 how low his kind of stock was through the 80s if you look at after the high points of of tug of war and maybe slightly less so in Mm parts of peace, you've got the reaction to give more regards to Broad Street and in particular press to play. Uh, A few questions around that. Why do you think his stock was so low in the 80s? Uh, Do you think it was deserved? Did you think that the quality of work he was putting out was
1: dramatically lower? Well, okay. So the 1980s began, I mean, the one thing that you know, that really sets the tone for the 80s is, you know, the death of John Lennon in December of 1980. Right. You know, this incredible trauma, and and John was sort of elevated to a kind of secular saint. You know, this idea that, you know, I mean, he had been murdered in this terrible, terrible way. And, um, and then in the morning for John, this narrative kind of grew that he had been the real genius of the Beatles. And Paul was the kind of, you know, the engineer that that made the trains run on time, you know, that he would get the boys into the (laughs) studio and John would tell them what to do type of sitch, you know, and Paul was always kind of the poppy poseur, you know, which wasn't accurate at all. But but that was the narrative that Philip Norman put in a shout, Paul went into this, can you, you know, you go back and you see how defensive he is in those interviews, because on the one hand, The death of John was an enormous personal tragedy to him. It wasn't, it was a tragedy for everyone, right? But John was his best friend. I mean, when they, you know, and he did this incredible work with him, and they were like this, you know, beyond renowned partnership. And they had been incredibly close and done incredible work together and become global icons as a result. But then their relationship ended in a kind of unhappy way at least a creative relationship. And they were only just, I think, coming back to some level of, you know, a normalized friendship at the end of the decade. But it still was, I mean, you still see John slagging off Paul in those, you know, interviews. He he did an interview with Newsweek, I think, in September of, of 1980. I remember reading it in the high school library and being a little chagrined that John was still slagging Paul in such a kind of Mm -hmm. a mean-spirited way. But then later, you know, I think he thought better about it. And then the next few interviews he did, he was much more warm and generous about Paul's contributions to his work and everything. Mm -hmm. But I think also there was, you know, in John's death, people, it became like this zero-sum game where people felt like in order to appropriately, you know, pay respect to John, they needed to subtract something from Paul. Mm. which which isn 't true, but but people i don 't know people 's minds just work that way, you know like like well, if this guy was great, then this guy had to have been less great and paul, I think, felt horrified because on the one hand, he had had this you know this horrible loss um, in a relationship that hadn 't been entirely resolved, that was still troubling to him, but now this fellow who he had sort of been in competition with was gone and, you know, and had become sainted and Paul couldn't criticize him because he didn't want to be seen as diminishing his martyred partner. But on the other hand, there was this dynamic where people who who paying tribute to John were doing it at his expense like Philip Norman for instance and mm-hmm. you know and Yoko Ono for instance i mean and they would just say really mean things about Paul and what his relative contribution to the Beatles was and 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 it was horrifying to him because i think you know he also has had this terror and maybe still does that at some point history you know as the years go on history, history will not comprehend the Beatles appropriately and that people will assume that John Lennon was the point, you know, that John Lennon was in fact, the Beatles leader and Paul was the secondary guy, you know, that Paul is you know, and that's why he is on occasion really wanted to flip the credits. So the songs that he wrote for the Beatles will be McCartney Lennon instead of Lennon McCartney. And and Mm. that looks really unseemly to us, but on the other hand, can you imagine how it feels for Paul to see, you know, a song like yesterday that he wrote entirely, um, to have people describe it as part of John Lennon's career, you know, and, and when you look at the song credit, it says, you know, John Lennon is the first author and people don't understand that it was no, 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 this is just a Paul song, you know, and I think Paul finds it really, really hard. And, you know, that a song like that, that's something he really really did on his own will be credited to John as well, you know, and perhaps in the future people will mistake that as primarily the work of John Lennon. You know, and I think that sort of set up a kind of, you know, and Paul doesn't do himself favors when, you know, he'll make a big fuss about flipping the credits or, or stuff like that, you know, because he's seen as, again, you know, diminishing John at his own, you know, enhance his own reputation, mm. which isn't necessarily fair, but, but that's what people see. I think that his reputation in the mid 80s was lower in England than it was in America right i can tell you that now i mean even though so you know tug of war came out in 1982 and people love that record it's a really solid it's a really really good album it's one mm-hmm. of his better definitely one of his better solo records uh he had that huge smash with ebony and ivory on which i actually i can't stand that song for a variety of reasons it just doesn't work for me as a as a political song or a ballad or whatever it's sort of You know, that's kind of the Paul McCartney that I think people who don't like Paul McCartney or don't like solo Paul McCartney sort of point to as the thing they don't like. It feels sentimental, it feels a little saccharine, it feels easy. You know, it's like a song like Ebony and Ivory, which is about racism, is like somehow still, I think it's a little weird that given the fact that even now, you know, practically 40 years later, systemic racism is like one of the the biggest problems certainly in the US and hmm. you know in, in a lot of other cultures as well. So but that song, you know, it sort of sings about, oh, we're all equal and let's all get along and la, la, la di da you know, come on, people. It's like, well that's easy to say, but it doesn't, you know, a political song should demand something more. It should at least point out that there are hard choices to make and, you know, I don't know. That's my perspective. But but then I remember I was so stoked about Tug of War. I was so happy with that record that I ran out immediately and bought pipes of peace thinking that it was going to be another great. And, and that was such a huge disappointment. It's amazing, especially since I think a lot of those songs were recorded at the same time as tug of war,
0: Yeah,
1: that that record feels so slapdash. And so like the songs just don't really cut it really. I mean, it's got, I go back and I'll, I'll listen to it again and there's just nothing, you know, there's very little there to, for me, you know, that, I, that I want to listen to repeatedly. Subsequently, uh, as it turned out uh I I really enjoy say say say. I think that's a really good pop song.
0: Well, I was I was I was just going to say actually I love both say 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 and I love the man the other duet with Michael Jackson. Working with Michael Jackson in 1983 must have been quite inspiring. I mean, if you're talking about hot streaks in pop, you know, off mm. the wall and thrillers, not a bad pair. So I think you know Paul was on a winner there. But yeah, you know, I think I think you're right. I think that outside of those two tracks and maybe maybe Through Our Love, the last song. I do think Pipes of Peace just doesn't hang together as well. Maybe the title track, actually. I quite love the title track. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating how that that does feel like a kind of a volume two of uh, Tug of War, which is a shame.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it should have been a lot. It felt like it should have been a lot better. And then, and then after that, you know, he kind of, he really sort of loses his way because he gets, you know, then comes Give My Regards to Broad Street, which is just a really, really, like, not good movie, and the soundtrack is like he re records some of the Beatles, some of his Beatles songs, and he does, you know. And I'm a huge Paul fan, right? So I always want his stuff to be great. Mm. And, um, and you know, that came out, and I bought it, and you know, I like the single from that, um, No More Lonely Nights, yeah. and that's got like a really cool melody. And I remember that was a hit song, and I heard that on the radio a lot. And there's a passion to that, there's a real you know, there's a, there's a bittersweet aspect to it that that I like a lot. Um, and that really comes through on that Dave Gilmore guitar solo, which is like one of the best guitar solos. It's nearly up there with the guitar solo on my love, Henry McCullough's solo, which is just breathtaking. I think I mean, that whole song to me is transformed by that solo. But then it's like the movie was horrible and Paul's whole <laughs> thing was just, you know, and then, and then right after that, you know, he did the spies like us, which is just sort of a goofy pop little song and then mm. came uh press to play, which was just, you know, I mean, he was working with Hugh Padgham and, and they were, you know, there are things about that record that are actually really cool. There's some really cool kind of sonic experiments and things that they're doing with samples and, and uh, you know, and, and like on, um, press the first single you know the way that his breath becomes like a percussion instrument there's like yeah. really cool sonic stuff but the songs are just not they don't stick with me they're not songs that i enjoy very much i mean even though there's certain fragments i mean there's one song uh, feel the sun which is part of like a two song medley yeah. that he put together that i really like it sounds like it's got the strong melody of a Beatles song you know it, it's got that energy but it's like half a song that he glued together to another song it's like You know, then you just get and that record, I remember was like, I think a a fairly big flop for him, like commercially a flop. And then, uh, you know, one thing that I hadn't even really known much about was that then he tried to make a record with Phil Ramone and then uh, David Foster. But then right after that, he started working with Elvis Costello. And then they began to produce those songs, which I think are fantastic. There's that whole album of demos that they finally released. Uh, right, them you know Elvis and Paul with two acoustic guitars mostly, and those are you know Tommy's coming home and 25 fingers and all these really cool songs. And the initial plan was for them to write and record the album together, uh, and that Elvis was going to co-produce it and play on it and everything. And and they really did find a kind of Lennon McCartney type energy. But Paul lost his faith in the project partway through. And then, you know, I think Elvis got shoved aside a little bit. And then they produced Flowers in the Dirt, which is a great record. But Mm. in some ways, the best things about it are those compositions that he did with Elvis. And, and, you know, there's a sleekness to that record that maybe is a little over sleek. But but that record came out and that sort of began at least, I think, in, in the UK as well. Then people began to feel there was more of a sympathy for Paul because he sort of rebuilt himself into kind of like the Beatles ambassador to the 90s and beyond, you know, I mean, that's when he went back on the road with his new band and they were suddenly playing at least half Beatles songs. Hmm. And uh, or more than that, really. I mean, you go back to the tripping the live fantastic album, and that that you know those tours, and you know, and at that point, the last songs, on, you know, the the, the end of the show is freighted heavily on the Beatles songs, and not just Beatles songs, but big Beatles standards. You know, Hey Jude yeah. and Let It Be, and you know the the you know the, the Abbey Road medley and that stuff. I mean, and it's beautiful to hear and play that stuff. But it wasn't like it had been fifteen years earlier with the Wings tour when all the biggest hottest songs were the ones that, you know, that he had, uh, you know, that were just so, we the newest ones.
0: I, I think to kind of conclude now, moving on while we're talking about Paul, I think "Flowers in the Dirt, it's the first step on the journey to the pool that we have now in, in 2021. Um, we're mm-hmm. talking at the start of 2021, uh, a month or so after McCartney Three. Uh, has been released, which was number one in the UK, and I think was similarly successful uh, in the US. Um, his reputation now might be the the highest that it's 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 ever been. In a way, I mean, even since in the twelve years since you finished the book, I think his reputation's only gone one way. Do you think that that's genuine? Do you think that that's deserved? Do you think that the quality of the records? and the live shows even that he's done in the last kind of 10, 15 years deserve that?
1: You know, I mean, it's interesting the way, it's like, I remember when Ram came out, you know, which was the record after McCartney. Um, and I remember how furious people were with Paul, just for being Paul, you know, and, and in, you know, right after the Beatles, because he was the least political of the Beatles at a time when political, you know, when a lot of pop music was political. He was the poppiest. And and it's like and I and people just hated Ram, you know. It's just like oh, and they just you know how they could barely count the ways of how much they hated that record. But then thirty years go by, and they re-release the record, and suddenly Rolling Stone comes back with a five-star review, <laughs> and people suddenly realize like no 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 no, this is a great record. This is a fantastic record, you know. And and to some extent, you know, I think that's beginning to happen with Back to the Egg. Even mm. people are you know there there are a lot of indie artists who look at that record and they're like, you know, and suddenly they're like, wait a minute, you know, this is a great record, you know, and, and, um, you know, I think people also, you know, as somebody, you know, Paul's obviously, I mean, he's almost 80 years old now, you know, I mean, you get the sense, you know, I've seen him play a bunch in the last, uh, you know, I've, I've seen almost every tour that he's done, or certainly when he's come through my part of the U.S., you know, so I saw like I saw him in 76 and I saw him in, in, in 90 and then again in 93 and then again in 02 and then again, you know, and, and it's just it's, it's always amazing to me how great he is in concert and people and also just like the guy can play for three and a half hours and barely scratch the surface of the classics that he's written. Mm. You know, these songs that drive everyone berserk from tune to tune to tune. And I think that you know you're at this stage in the game, and the Beatle, the politics of the Beatles breakup are done. The politics of quasi radicalism of pop culture in the you know the early '70s is 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 done. Um, and I think people look at Paul now as he is kind of the living vision of the Beatles. He is mm-hmm. you know the ambassador of you know the Beatles ambassador of the 21st century, and he is our connection to you know, to the greatest pop music or some of the greatest music of the last century. And there he is. And he's still capable of doing it on stage for three hours in, you know, an incredibly high quality. You know, I've taken all my kids to see Paul over the years, even though it's gotten more and more just outrageously expensive, just because <laughs> I sort of felt like for their cultural education, for their experience of life in the world, that the fact that Paul McCartney is still up and playing music, playing Beatles music as you know as well as the Beatles ever did, is phenomenal. It's miraculous, and I wanted them to all have that experience of seeing, you know, of experiencing the Beatles like, you know, in a kind of firsthand way. And um, and so I feel really fortunate to have been able to do that. One of my one of my favorite memories. My son. Uh, Teddy, who I think was in high school at the time, so fifteen or sixteen years old, I took him and his friend up to see them at C-Paul at uh in Seattle, a big baseball stadium in the summer of I think 2015. And uh, you know, and they're young kids, and 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 pretty hip, and like a lot of indie music and stuff. And you know, but they were still hyped to see the Beatles, you know, to see Paul McCartney, because um, you know they both grown up with this. Obviously, if you grow up in my house, you hear, you know, you grew up with Paul McCartney music. Um, <laughs> but what I loved was when you know after everything we you know we drove up there to go through the whole thing get into the stadium find our seats sit down you know it's like a big stadium show there's tons of people it's like this whole thing there's a lot of waiting a lot of standing around and finally when the lights came up the band comes up on stage and we're all cheering and stuff and then when paul walked out on stage i just glanced over at my son and his face lit up in this smile that was just so there was so much light in his expression and so much joy and seeing this guy in front of him. And when he started playing the music, I mean, that was really moving to me. The other yeah. thing I'll say, and you know, maybe we can close with this, mm. is when I saw Paul in 2002, I, was, I went as a critic. I was, you know, I was working at the, the newspaper in Portland at the time, and I was the TV critic, but the music critic couldn't make it to the show. And and he knew that I was a big Beatles guy. So he's like, you want to review the McCartney show? I was like, sure. Great. So I go and you know, you get pretty good seats when you're the critic, you know, the promoter, you know, you get them through the newspaper whatever the promoter sends them. But this was like second row center, the very, very front. So I was standing like 10 feet from where Paul was, which I wasn't expecting. And, um, and I wasn't expecting to be as thrilled with the show as I was, but, you know, I was a little, a little cynical. I was going through a little bit of a cynical moment with McCartney, which mm. lasted until the lights went down and he walked out on stage and he's, you know, and then he started playing music. And then suddenly I was a kid again and I was just going bananas. And I think the second song he played was Jet. And oh, I love that song. And I'm up there and I'm so close to him. I'm like in the sort of the wash of the, the footlights, right? So he can see me. And you know, he's looking at, you know, there's however many, 20,000 people there, but I was right up front, sort of in the lights. And at one moment, I was just singing along, just out of control, just like wailing along. And I saw him, his eyes sort of flickered around and he caught my eye for a sec. And I know he could see me singing every word with him mm-hmm. and his face lit up. And I thought like, wow, I had this moment with McCart like a split second where we were looking at each other. And my love of his music gave him a, you know, a moment of happiness. And I thought that was an important moment to me just as a fan, like just being able to communicate to him how much his music has meant to me over the years in that split second. You know, I don't know if he looked at my book or, you know, or if that would matter to him at all, but, but you know, I could probably write 10 books and they wouldn't matter to him as much as that split second there. Well, because that's what the music is to him. You know, it's life, it's love, it's his existence. And I think, you know, and it wasn't me because I'm Peter and I'm special. I was just another fan. Mm-hmm. But just the idea that he could turn on another fan that way was, mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's what, to me, that sort of delivered something about the essence of what makes him do what he does. And that was a big moment for me. That was about as good as it gets.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that. What a lovely memory. What a lovely moment that is. Uh, And thank you for for sharing your uh, memories of of writing the book. Um, Before I let you go, um, we we must talk about this fantastic new book, which arrived through my door about a week ago, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records, Sonic Boom, from Hendrix to Fleetwood Mac to Madonna to Prince. Um, So, uh, you know, There are countless famous record labels uh, that that all could quite easily garner their own books. What was it about Warner Brothers that attracted you to write this one?
1: Well, what I loved about Warner Brothers Records was, um, you know, and just very briefly, it was a, you know, kind of a middle of the road uh, record company that had been founded by, you know, uh, uh, Jack Warner, who ran the movie studio Warner Brothers, and then And then that first label ended up, you know, uh, joining forces with a label called Reprise that Frank Sinatra started in, you know, in early, you know, in 1960, it was going to be his boutique label for sort of jazzy, cool artists um, that, you know, of his generation and uh, they joined forces and both labels had sort of tried to avoid rock and roll for the longest time, but then they were going out of business behind that because, you know, obviously by 19, you know, the the early 1960s, pop culture was all about rock and roll music and and the radio was all about rock and roll music. And you were not going to sell a lot of, you know, Dean Martin records. Though of course Dean Martin did pretty well for a while there, but you know, there were a lot of other stars that weren't quite as, as powerful as those guys and they were losing money hand over fist and and they began to allow rock artists onto the label in the mid 60s and then by 1967 this new generation of of, of executive led by uh, Mo Austin and then his counterpart Joe Smith but but Mo was really kind of the visionary of the company. And what he did essentially is um, decided, you know, he really intuited the fact that, that this new, you know, that the baby boomers who had been teeny boppers in the early 60s were getting educated and growing up and becoming more sophisticated consumers of music. And as a result, you know, their taste in rock and roll was going to get more avant-garde and, and they were going to want more interesting artists and not just like people who were writing hit singles, but people who were going to be able to write cool, arty music. And so they signed the Grateful Dead and they signed Jimi Hendrix and a lot of these very left of center artists. And the philosophy uh, was sort of summarized by Mo. He took his A&R staff, who were the people who were the record producers and the talent scouts and you know who, who helped create the music for the label. And he told them something that no record executive had ever told any you know, any r staff, which was Let's stop trying to make hit records. Let's just make good records and turn those into hits, which was the most counterintuitive thing ever. Because up until that point, all music, you know, the music industry was about hit singles. But they set out and they signed, you know, again the Dead and Hendrix and Randy Newman, the great singer songwriter, and and guys like Captain Beefheart and and then Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and James Taylor. And a lot of very sophisticated singer songwriter types and rock bands and 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 they formed the nucleus of this label that was very consciously about the music, not about the money. And you know, and Mo would say, like, look you know we're going to put the music first we're going to put the artists first we're not going to tell them what to do we're going to let them grow into their own voices and find their own audiences and we think that this sh- that this short term investment that we make in them is going to turn into t- a long term you know profitable situation which is exactly what happened and what mo anticipated partly from having grown up you know coming into the business working for a jazz label was that when you make Great records, the fans of the music are going to buy them for years and years and years. They're going to keep buying them. You know, people mm-hmm. still want to hear Miles Davis's kind of blue. You know, they still want to hear Dave Brubeck's Take Five. These records sell and sell and sell. And so, it was, part of the idea was to create catalogs of albums by artists who were just better than all the other artists. That were more sophisticated artists. And so, and and even now, you know, near you know, fifty five years later those records are still selling Hendrix's first album, the dead albums, you know, Joni Mitchell's records. I mean, and so essentially it just became, you know, he ran this company kind of like a for-profit art commune where the, the money made by the more popular artists um, would subsidize records made by artists like Van Dyke parks and Randy Newman, who didn't sell it first. And a lot of these, you know, or a band like Fleetwood Mac who, were this kind of creative blues band that didn't have that big of an audience for the first seven or eight years they were on Warner's. And then suddenly in the mid 70s, they get a couple new kids in the band and the, you know, and become more of a sort of a pop band and kablammo this band that had been selling maybe 150,000 copies of their records, which wasn't that big a deal back in those days, mm. um, were selling 3 million copies. And then the next record sold 20 million copies. And now you're making this incredible flood of money on a band that probably any other record company would have cut, you know, would have cut loose after their first one or two records didn't do very well. Mm. And so they created, a, 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 you know, this record company that was for the longest time kind of the face of the counterculture in the U.S., but it was... You know, they were just very ahead of the game in terms of signing artists that were album artists that were very creative, uh, letting them do what they wanted and not trying to kind of, you know, pound hip artists into pop kind of framework. You know, the idea was, you know, this guy Stan Cornyn was one of their uh, their advertising, you know, sort of their chief advertising executive and and also, you know, an influential executive just around the business. And and he said in an interview in around 1972, he said, I want to stop record companies from using artists and I want to start artists using record companies. (laughs) And he was, he was serious, you know, I mean, and that's basically what, what their, what their attitude was. And for decades, it fueled this incredible success because their commitment to the music and to the artists was, you know, attracted a lot of the best musicians over the years. And so, you know, in the late 70s, they signed, they were the record company that got to sign Prince, you know, because they they promised him the freedom to make the records he wanted to make and produce them and play them however he wanted to. And then they signed bands like R.E.M., you know, and one of the reasons R.E.M. signed with them was because, the, you know, the, Peter Buck, the guitar player, um, had been aware of Warner's, Going back to the late 60s when he fell in love with the Van Dyke Parks records and Captain Beefheart records. And REM was a, you know, and that was, you know, it's the fruit of Mo's plan from 1967 was that if they put out artsy records, they were going to get the best artists. And mm-hmm. those people, and some of them were going to be more you know, we're going to be more, more radio friendly than others, you know, or more, you know, accessible. And so a band like REM who's a very arty kind of band and stick to their vision and, you know, and, and bent the mainstream to them, you know, they were going to want to sign with Warners because they were going to trust them to, to let them do the work that they wanted to do, which is exactly what the decision that REM made in, you know, in 1988. Mm -hmm. And so it was, you know, it's an amazing, story of of kind of the victory you know sort of the triumph of of idealism in you know in the in the in the professional arts in um you know the fact that you know usually so many times when you write about popular culture or write about popular music you're writing about this sort of struggle between art and commerce you know how do you take artists And turn them into popular artists, you know, how do you take somebody, you know, how is it possible to make great art, that's also going to sell well enough for, you know, corporate people to want to support. And, um, you know, most often, uh, you know, companies, you know, try to, you know, make artists work to corporate you know, you know, to sort of fulfill a kind of corporate destiny. Hmm. Uh, Warners did it the other way around. They let the artists be artists and made the record company bend to the artists' ways. And they made even more money than the other companies. But it's still, you know, but uh, but still after, you know, nearly 30 years, you know, those people, the people who had been doing that kind of got tossed out of the company and more corporate people came in and, and things got a lot worse for the company like people didn't learn really but but it's uh so so yeah no it was a very moving story for me i'd grown up being aware of warner's and 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 as i you know as being this kind of other sort of arty company and you know and then as the years went on, you know, I'd be, you know, when I would look at my record collection, I would realize that a huge percentage of the artists that I liked were either on Warner Brothers or one of the labels that was associated with Warners, like Sire Records or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Capricorn. And, you know, there were a lot of, you know, Atlantic, all these other these other labels, but it's like. You know that they were all sort of flowed from this this vision that that, that Mo Austin had, had in 1967 to create a cool artist friendly label and see how that would do and how it did was fantastic.
0: Certainly, it certainly did. It certainly did. It's a it's a fascinating story and it's uh, it's really thrillingly written. Uh, so I would heartily uh, recommend anyone that hasn't to. to go out there now and, and pick up Sonic, Sonic Boom. Um, well, Peter, this has been a, a wonderful, thank you so much for for your time uh, and for talking about both Sonic Boom and Paul McCartney and
1: Life. Uh, thanks so much. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's been great.